0: Luke 24 tells us a story, tells us the story that takes place, a story that takes place uh, a few days after the crucifixion, a few days after the empty tomb has been discovered. We're told that there are two followers of Jesus who are on a journey. They're on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, uh, which is probably seven miles or so, a walk that they would have made probably pretty frequently. We don't know much about these two as they journey. We're not given a whole lot of information. We're told that one of them is named Cleopas. And that's about all we get. So there are lots of questions around who are these two? What are they doing? Where are they going? What's happening with them? Are they two friends who are on a journey back to Emmaus? Are they husband and wife? Who are on the road back to Emmaus because we eventually find out that they have a home or at least one of them has a home in Emmaus and that they were traveling to this home in Emmaus. But before they get to Emmaus, the story tells us that they were interrupted by a visitor. A stranger Appears among them as they're walking now not appears in some type of magical way or ghostly way We don't get the idea that it's this supernatural There were only two people on the road and then suddenly there were three I think if that's the way that it happened, we probably would see some kind of mystery around, whoa, how did this happen? What's going on here? Instead, in my mind, and it's actually different than I'd ever imagined the story. I suspect that this means there were lots of people on the road. There were travelers that were going back and forth in different directions. It was easy for there to be someone on the road who they didn't notice and then who was standing beside the two of them. And we're told that this stranger who came up beside them began to interact with them in their conversation. The stranger realized that they were were deep in conversation. There was something going on that they were talking about. There was something happening that was emotional. So the stranger says, what is it that you're talking about? And they didn't seem put off by such a thing. Instead... The understanding that we're given is that they were surprised. How is it possible that this stranger could come up and could ask them what it was they were talking about? Wouldn't it be obvious what they were talking about? Everyone in Jerusalem was talking about the same thing. Wouldn't it be obvious that that was the conversation that they were having? But this stranger came and said, what is it that you're talking about? So they decided to enlighten Jesus on what it was that had happened to Jesus over the last few days. Now, again, stranger to them. They didn't realize that's what they were doing, but that is what they were doing. They told Jesus what had been going on with Jesus. And as they did so, they also revealed to this stranger their hopes for who they hoped that Jesus would be. They'd hoped that Jesus would be the Messiah. They had hoped that Jesus would come and would rescue them from being ruled by these pagan societies that had had ruled over them generation after generation. They had hoped that Jesus would come and overthrow the Roman Empire. They had hoped that Jesus would bring them freedom, that Jesus would bring them salvation. They had hoped... If you remember our series, we called A New Way, which was looking at some stories of Jesus and the idea of the way that Jesus had called us to live life. We did that from during the Lenten season leading up to Easter. If you remember that, then you remember that a time or two, I made a comment about a basic expectation that everyone in that time would have had about what it meant to be Messiah. Do you remember at all? No, no. Those of you that are shaking your head, yes, I don't believe you for a moment. Mike back there says, I do too. There was this basic expectation that Messiahs don't get killed by the enemy. And yet because that's exactly what had happened with Jesus, it meant to these followers and to others that obviously Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. And as they shared all of this, their, their crushed hopes, their disappointments. Jesus, a stranger, again, they don't know who this is. He just appeared and started having a conversation with them. Rather bluntly, criticizes their lack of faith. And their understanding of what it meant to be the Messiah. We're told that this stranger began to remind them of the words that they would have known from their own from their own scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, the words that they would have known that spoke to who the Messiah would be, to what the Messiah would do, to what the Messiah would have to walk through. This stranger began to connect these dots that seemed to them disconnected, that seemed to them broken and fractured, that left them believing that there's no way that Jesus could still be the Messiah. This this stranger began to connect all of the dots and make sense of how maybe it was actually possible that Jesus was the Messiah that they'd hoped for, that they'd waited for, that they had looked for all of these years. Now, I don't know about you, but as I, as I read this story several times this week, I thought about myself being one of the two. I thought about myself if a stranger had suddenly appeared and began to instruct me on how I did my own faith. And and again, I don't know about you, I would have been offended at the entire interaction. How dare this person just show up in the middle of my conversation and then decide to tell me whether or not I did have faith in this guy that I'd committed my entire life to following and now was broken hearted that, that Jesus had been ripped from me. And now the body was missing and people were saying maybe he was alive and I'm confused and I'm distraught and I, I don't understand what's going on. I would have been offended, but they showed no such thing. They didn't show offense at what was taking place. Instead, they seemed intrigued. Intrigued by what was happening. Intrigued by what this stranger had to tell them. Now the truth is, there are a ton of things that we could unpack in Luke chapter 24. It's a really, really fascinating story of this, of this stranger Jesus interacting with these, these two as they journeyed back to Emmaus. But I want to focus on what happens next in the story. We're told that they got to Emmaus. Understandably time for the conversation between the stranger and the two followers of Jesus to end as they would go their separate ways. And yet here's what Luke 24 tells us in verses 28 and 29. It says, by this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on. Now again, at this point, it... it, It tells us Jesus because we're reading the story. But if you're in their mind, the stranger who they don't know, who they have no idea where he's going or what he does, the stranger acts as if he's going on to where the stranger was going, wherever he was headed in the first place. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. These two who apparently weren't offended, because if I were, I would have said, hey, just keep on going. The dark is coming and the road ahead is going to get very dangerous for you. Instead, they invited him into their home. They invited this stranger to stay the night. They invited this stranger to join them at their dinner table. Surely they were intrigued by what the stranger was teaching them. And I suspect that that had some influence on what they were doing. That had some influence on why they would want more, on why they would be interested in hearing more and inviting them in. But there was more going on in this interaction than just going, hey, you've told us some interesting things. We want to know more. Come join us. There was this, this deep belief in who they were and in what they did in the value of hospitality. It was, it was written throughout their Jewish scriptures that they were supposed to be hospitable people. They were supposed to care for the stranger. They were supposed to welcome the traveler into their home. They were supposed to protect travelers who were on a journey, who were going somewhere. There was this deep understanding of the need for hospitality. It continued to be echoed in the teachings of Jesus. And in the scriptures, we find that it stretches even further beyond that. Hospitality was rooted deep. In what it meant to be a Jewish believer. In what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. So we find that these two. Journeying home to Emmaus. Even in their disappointment. Invited this stranger to stay. Even in their despair. Were consistent. To the practices of their faith. And their faithfulness. Resulted. In a powerful interaction. That may not have ever taken place if they hadn't shared a meal with this stranger. Verse 31 says this. It says, Suddenly, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus had been with them the entire time. We don't fully understand why it was that they didn't recognize him, what was happening, that they couldn't identify Jesus as Jesus But we're told that as they gathered for dinner, their eyes were opened and they recognized the stranger. As they gathered at the table, they were able to recognize him. As they shared their home, as they shared their table, as they shared a meal, they experienced the fullness of who Jesus was. And I think that that in this verse and in this passage and in this story, we're being shown something that they believe to be true. It's not clearly taught because... They didn't need it taught to them. They understood that this was a truth that I think we often miss because of the way in which our culture has changed and the ways in which our living of faith has changed. They understood and they believed deeply that powerful things happened at the dinner table. They believed wholeheartedly that Jesus could fully show up at mealtime. Read throughout the scriptures and we find over and over again, there's something significant that happens between Jesus and food. Over and over again, throughout the stories, Jesus and food were intimately connected. When a meal was shared, Jesus' fullness was shown. When Jesus wanted to show his fullness, he fed those who didn't have food. Over and over again, there was this connection with Jesus and with food. With Jesus and the table, with the way in which Jesus was able to show up. At the dinner table. Just last week, as we talked about the washing of feet, it was at the Last Supper. It was at the meal that would be the last that Jesus would share with his disciples. It was there that he could show the full extent of his love all the way to the end. These followers of Jesus understood that the dinner table was a sacred space. Now, for many of us, it also is sacred, and yet it's sacred in a different kind of way. It's sacred because it's protected. It's sacred because it's guarded. It's sacred because we only allow certain people to come in that deeply. To come that far into our life, to come that far into our world, to come that far into our interactions with one another, into our interactions with family. Think about it in your own home. A lot of times we don't, it's one of the last things we often do is bring them to the dinner table. We might go and have a meal out. We might bring them into our living room. We might gather at the table, but there is something special about sharing a meal. And there are only certain people that break all the way through that threshold and come into that sacred space, that protected space. This morning, I want to talk about the reality that I believe that Jesus longs to do powerful things at our dinner table. If we're willing to take down the walls that protect that space and allow that space to become sacred in the way that Jesus has intended for it to be sacred. So how do we get there? How do we get to the place that our dinner table is a sacred space? I think it starts with the idea that we invite Jesus into every aspect of our life. I've made an assumption In this series that we're doing where we talk about fanning into flames our own faith and the faith of others. I've made an assumption that we desire to help other people come to know and follow Jesus more faithfully. I've made an assumption that that's a longing inside each of us. We've talked about it being expected. We've talked about it being part of what we do as Christ followers. And and we've assumed that all of us actually want to participate in that practice. Now connected to this is actually a, a, a deeper and maybe more dangerous assumption that we've made. It's the assumption that you and I have committed ourselves fully to Jesus. Now, now, the assumption that I'm talking about is not necessarily a, an assumption that I'm making for those that are in the room that wouldn't call themselves Christians, that wouldn't call themselves Christ followers, that, that aren't yet at the place that they've seen that. I'm not talking as much about those assumptions as I'm talking about this assumption that is connected to those of us who would say, yes, I'm a Christian. I have assumed, we have assumed that connected to being a Christian means you have decided that you will live a life in which Jesus is Lord of everything. I have assumed that 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 is the case. I have communicated with that assumption and yet I think it's probably true that many of us have not gone quite that far. Many of us have not made such a commitment. Sure, we love Jesus. We do, and we really do. I'm not even questioning that that piece. We love Jesus, and we're committed to some version of what it means to have faith in Jesus, of what it means to be a part of the local church. Many of us like the idea of getting to go to heaven when we die, so because of that, we're, we're okay with the Christian idea. We want to be one of those. But we can't quite get to the place That we live in full submission to Christ and his kingdom. We can't quite get to the place that we give everything in our life over to Jesus. We've given up most things. we've, We've given up a lot of things. We've let Jesus have control of a lot of those things. But there are still some things that we've decided to hold on to. Some things that we're not yet willing to release. That we're not yet willing to let go of. Some things that we're not okay with Jesus being Lord of. Now maybe again I've made an assumption and all of you are sitting there and going, nope, not my life. I haven't done that at all. It's just you, Chad. Okay, maybe I'm the only one. But I confess that there are parts of my life that I have not been willing to give over to Christ. Which means that I'm not fully committed to walking with Jesus. And that's the call of discipleship. That's the call of what it means to be a part of this. I think it's often true that it's in our homes, that it's at our dinner tables... That we find out if we are fully surrendered to the ways of Jesus. It's there. It's in this protected space. It's in this area that we want to section off, that we want to block out, that we find out whether or not we are all in. It's in this typically protected space that Jesus longs to make a sacred space. Our dinner tables become the sacred space that Jesus longs for them to be when we invite him into every aspect of our life and we decide, no, 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 everything is yours. All of it, even my protected spaces, I'm giving over and I'm allowing you to have them. So it's more than just inviting in Jesus. It has to do with surrendering everything we have to Jesus. It's the decision that we give possession of of our life, possession of our loves, possession of all of our belongings over to Jesus and his kingdom. And when we do so, Jesus longs to do powerful things with our stuff. Jesus longs to do powerful things with what we have with what we've had, with what we've been in control of. Jesus longs to use our home and our table and our possessions to communicate love to the world. Jesus longs to work in powerful ways. And we find out that this is true really early in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 12, there's this interesting interaction that takes place between God and Abraham. And in in Genesis 12, verse 2, it says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. We're told that Abraham is going to be blessed, blessed in ways that he can't even imagine possible. And as we read more and more of his story, we find out that that's true, that he receives blessings he couldn't dream of, blessings he couldn't fathom. But along with those blessings came an assignment. The assignment was that Abraham would take on this blessing and then he would turn around and bless others. It was that Abraham would be blessed with the opportunity to be a blessing to others. And friends, when you and I enter the place that we are fully surrendered to Christ. Jesus longs to do the same with us. To bless us so that we can in turn bless others. So our dinner table, this this protected space can become a sacred space. When we surrender it over to Jesus. When we invite Jesus to come in and take ownership. But even deeper than that. It's when we're willing to offer It to others. It's when we're willing to offer the things that we protect over to others. Cleopas and this companion, I think it was probably his wife, invited Jesus into this space, still believing that Jesus was a stranger. They didn't do so for for personal gain. They may have been intrigued in what he was saying and what, what this stranger had that he could still say, what it was that they could learn. But that was only the beginning of what was going on. It was not about their personal gain. It wasn't because they thought that Jesus would bless them in some special way. They didn't even know it was Jesus. It wasn't so that they could have some experience that nobody else had ever had. Look at this opportunity we have to have a meal with the risen Savior before anyone else does. They didn't know any of that was taking place. They simply believed that it was the right thing to do in their faith to welcome the stranger into their home, into their dinner table. They were sparked by the commitment to their faith. And they believed that their faith included taking care of the stranger. This step is the third in this six simple steps that Doug Dubois has written that we've been talking about, um, about how we share our faith. Six simple steps towards evangelism. And this third step is the step of radical hospitality. It's a deeper way of caring than the service that we talked about last week. Because we can serve other people, but we can still do that from a distance. We can still do that and not get too relationally involved in them. Not get too relationally invested. We can serve and then still run away. We can can serve and find ways that it be no more than a ritualistic obligation to do things for other people. But hospitality demands that we open up our lives so that others can view what's going on inside. Hospitality demands relationship. Hospitality demands the sharing of what it is that we've been blessed with. Hospitality demands that you and I release control of our possessions. And if we're willing to do so, in this this new, vulnerable, dangerous space that we've opened up, Other people now have the opportunity to see the presence of Christ in us and through us in ways that were never possible before. In this new space, others feel fully loved. In this new space where we've opened up ourselves, others feel fully welcomed into what is happening and what's going on. In this new space, others feel the opportunity to ask more questions, to investigate what it is that we're doing, who it is that we are. We find the opportunity to be more honest and more open. In this new space, we're given permission to share what it is that motivates us, what it is that causes us to live the way that we live. In this new space that we've opened up, this space of of allowing others all the way in, they get the chance to truly see what is it that is Lord of our life. And if Jesus is actually Lord of our life, then people grow fascinated and interested by this new way of transformed living that they're getting to watch take place. If we're willing to invite them into this space. Now, yes, sure. That doesn't mean it's always clean or pretty or looks good. That doesn't mean that inside our homes or at our dinner tables, we always talk nice to one another. That's the place we're usually meanest to one another, Right. But there's something that can be seen in our longing and our desire and our transformation and our willingness to forgive and to apologize, to confess and to ask for forgiveness. That is a beautiful piece of what it means to follow Jesus. And people only find that if we're willing to invite them into the most intimate spaces in our world. And I would argue that one of those is our dinner table. It's in radical hospitality that we find the opportunity for those who are far from God to do more than respond to just our religious practices or beliefs. It's in radical hospitality that, we get, that, that they get to experience the life of transformation that, that's happening in us. What it means to be fully committed to Jesus. Others get to experience it. They get to see it. They get to, they get to look at it. It's in radical hospitality that we find room To make disciples rather than converts. You see, converts believe the things that we would say we believe. They believe the same information that we would talk about. But disciples actually join us in following in the footsteps of Jesus. And that's what it is that we're hoping for, that we're longing for, that we're pursuing. So when individuals come to the place of trying to to seek evangelism through radical hospitality, it means that you and I reevaluate everything that we have. That we rethink all of our belongings, all of our world, all of the things that we've been blessed with. And we realign our lives in order to make sure that everything that we have been blessed with can now become a blessing to others. Everything that we have received can now be used for the benefit of other people, for the glory of God, so that they can be impacted. Radical hospitality means that we open up all of our lives and we, we invite others to look into the window. That is our life, that is our faith, that is our journey, that we welcome them fully in and we let them see what it means to follow Jesus. And when we do that as a church, when we do that as an organization, it's something similar. It means that we as an organization look at all the things that we have, all the things that we've been blessed with, and we look for opportunities to bless others with those things. With our building, with our resources, with our people, with our talents. That we, we identify and we look for ways to bless others with the blessings that we've received. As a church practicing radical hospitality, it means that we throw open our doors to people who don't look the same as us. That welcomed here among us are the rich and the poor. Those that are of a majority race and those that are of minority races. Men and women, old and young, citizens and immigrants... Believers and seekers, rulers and refugees, all are welcome here because that's what it means for us to be the church. And that's what it means for us to practice radical hospitality. A church practicing radical hospitality says you and you and you and you and you, you are welcome here. You're welcome to come and journey with us. You are welcome to come and discover with us. You are welcome at the table with Jesus. Come in. Join us. Be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit with us. Ruth Haley Barton in her book Life Together in in Christ Quotes Amy Hunter and says this. The Emmaus story reveals to us the image of a God and a church that walk alongside human confusion, human pain, and human loss of faith and hope. Emmaus challenges us to see that it isn't our unshakable faith and deep spirituality that connect us with the risen Christ. But our smallest Gestures of hospitality and friendship. As we long to see others come to know and follow Jesus. The third step on this road is the step of radical hospitality. What is it that you have? What is it that you own? What is it that you've been blessed with that you can turn and use for the blessing of others so that they might see what it means for you to live transformed? How do you invite them all the way in so that they can watch you fail and they can watch you succeed in your journey with Christ? That they can see every step along the way and can recognize that we are still deeply reliant on the grace of Christ in order to walk forward in our own journey of faith. How might you and I be radically hospitable to the lostness that surrounds us? As we finish, I want to invite you to pray with me. And as we do so, I'm going to actually read a written prayer, a a pre-written prayer that is um, from that same book that I mentioned by Ruth Haley Barton. So pray with me. Stay with us, Lord, since the day is far spent and the night is coming. Kindle our hearts on the way. That we may recognize you in the scriptures, in the breaking of bread, and in each other. As the poor widow welcomed Elijah, let us be open to the richness and miracle in meeting. As Abraham and Sarah welcomed passing strangers, let us entertain the possibility of angels in disguise. Let our eyes be opened that we may recognize in our neighbor the divine presence of Christ. Amen.